Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Hey folks, Weingart here, and this is an ED ECMO crash episode, meaning it's outside the normal flow. You know, Joe and Zach have a lot of stuff planned for future episodes, and I just like to jump in whenever I have something to say, or in this case, I want to interview someone with something to say. Uh, Zach just got done with an interview with Demetrius Yiannopoulos uh, out of the Twin Cities doing amazing work on ECMO in the cath lab. They talked about the broad picture and the results of uh, some publications that were just put out into the literature, and it was an amazing interview. If you haven't heard it, you should go listen to that now. But after that, you might be wondering, well, that's super interesting, but I want to know exactly how he gets things done. I want to know the method they are using. And as you know, if you've listened to my um, contributions to the ED ECMO podcast, it's always this minutia, really getting into the technical details. And that's what we do today. I re-interviewed Dr. Yiannopoulos, and we discussed every intricacy of his method. And if you like this kind of stuff, then let me know, because I will go to other people across the world, like the folks down under in Australia at the Alford, the folks from the Learn ECMO course, and, and get their perspectives. And then uh, you could kind of have a whole host of things that are working to pick and choose between. So let me know in the comments if this kind of show works for you. But let's get right into it with Dr. Yiannopoulos. Imagine patient brought fresh into the lab. You got the call. Maybe you managed to arrive before the patient got there. They come in on a Lucas, uh, I imagine, is what they're bringing them to you on. And uh, what, is, what is your first move? So usually the, the team is either there or arrives probably within five, 10 minutes uh, from the patient arriving afterwards. So we usually have the team there. Uh, sometimes the ED has to hold the patient for five to 10 minutes with ongoing CPR until we're all there. But we recently changed the protocol where the ED team, if the Catholic team is all present, I'm usually there because I'm the first to get the call and I am moving before everybody else. They bring the patient with the paramedics or firefighters, depends on how they transport them, with the ED doc and usually one or two nurses from the emergency department to the cath lab if we're not there. Otherwise, they just bring the patient and they go. Okay. In that case, uh, in that case, the most important thing is speed. And uh, the goal is to be able to um, put somebody on ECMO less than, uh, hopefully less than an hour and in less than 15 minutes from the 911 call. That's the, the target that we have uh, in the Twin Cities. Not always successful, but in the majority of the case, uh, it's uh, that uh, that quick, and um, that is the system goal. And our cath lab goal is door to ECMO within six to seven minutes. Sure. Okay. So, so then they're there yeah. now. How are you going to make that happen? All right. So a lot of that is preparation on the way to the cath lab. So the, most of the people have uh, their pants and undergarments all. Uh, taken out with scissors on the way to the cath lab, and um, they we move them immediately to the cath lab table with the Lucas and uh, nothing else. They don't need to be intubated if they're not. We continue the same airway management as before, and we do not shock. Once the patient is in the hospital, we don't bother of any more shocks because it really, if they haven't worked for 45 minutes, it's not going to work then. Sure. 
in um, at that point is usually myself or another one interventionist or two that they're doing it currently. And um, the techs, uh, there is a tech and two nurses usually from the cath lab and a second tech that's recording. The, the team has in general been uh, trained. Oh, right, right now we've done so many, uh, we don't train anymore, but um, we basically, everybody has their own. And um, so I'll, I'll run you through the steps of what we do and the sequence of events. The patient, before the patient is in the cath lab, an ECMO is started and debubbled. And it's already primed, but we started going so it can potentially debubble any additional bubbles that they have accumulated over a one or two days period that they're inert as machines. Um, and then we also place an ultrasound, uh, vascular ultrasound into sterile sleeves uh, so we can very quickly use it to get access. So once the patient is on the table, we prep them with um, betadine, basically as you guys do thoracotomies or whatever in the emergency, we basically uh, pour betadine uh, and then with the gauze, we basically quick, quickly dry the, the skin around the groin area. And um, we focus on the right groin because it's easiest for us uh, technically to get access. Then we put the sterile drape on and then we use the ultrasound and we have two percutaneous needles and two kind of extra stiff wires. And we place the wires in the artery undergoing CPR and ultrasound guidance. And once we have the two wires in, subsequently we create small incisions with a scalpel. Let me let me stop you for a second there, Dimitri. So yeah. you, you're using uh, standard. What what needles are you guys actually using? Where where, where do these come from? It's they are the Cook needles, uh, five centimeter Cook needles for coronary angiography. They are standard cath lab equipment. And now you're using Amplat super stiffs. Yes, Amplat super stiff wires. Because uh, with um, with the regular wires, they tend to kink a lot, so Absolutely. we don't want that. Absolutely. Now we've we've had various debates about this, about whether it's safe to go directly from needle to uh, a super stiff wire without an intervening placement of a catheter. That's correct, and uh, the reality is also the ultrasound gives you a very good. I don't know if you use ultrasound. We do, but yeah, the, yeah. The ultrasound guidance, um, you know, we also have a lot of experience in the cath lab by doing that. Um, so I never had a dissected artery from the wire, and I've done a lot. Is this a floppy tip or a J-tip, uh, Amplats? Yeah, it's a, it's a one centimeter um, J-tip, soft. So it has only a soft uh, one centimeter tip that is J, and the rest is very stiff. Got it. We don't want a very long soft tips because it's possible to create a... a um, a junction over there Absolutely. between the soft and the hard it can, it can be a spear. Yep. So the one centimeter seems to be working the best. And obviously once we have the wires in, we verify before we dilate with an x-ray, make sure one goes in one side, the other one stays in the same side, vein and artery, aura and uh, IVC. And do you, um, do you have a preference? You, you mentioned going for the artery first. Is that your normal practice? So I go for the artery first because the thing I do is the needle initially is hooked up with a blood gas syringe. So the first opening um, blood sample is sent for blood gases and lactic acid because those are two of my perfusion criteria to get on ECMO. 
Got it. If they, right. So my first stick in the artery, get the blood sample, I send it, I wire it, and then I go to the vein where I basically cut, and then I have I use the dilators that come with a, my cake, a kit, and I use the first and the second uh, 12 and 14 dilators for the artery and directly 16 and 18 for the vein. And um, subsequently, I go first on the vein because it's below the artery, and I put the vein venous cannula first. The reason being, I found that if I go with the arterial cannula first, sometimes just because of the uh, uh, artery basically being compressing on the vein, we seem to have a hard time putting the big venous cannulas. Got it. So now put the vein first. Go ahead. Let me uh, let me clarify just to make sure I'm on the same page. So you're mm-hmm. going two dilators with each vessel. So on the vein, you're skipping all of the smaller dilators. You're going directly to the 16 and then the 18. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And then for the artery, you're doing 12 and 14. And that's because your final arterial cannula size, if I remember from the paper. So I do all women get 15, all men get 17. Okay. I, if I have a very tiny as adult, actually, I don't even change it anymore. I don't put 17 in women. Um, I've never had any problem with flow generation in both systems um, with 17 and 25 and 15 and 25. I always had adequate flow, more than four liters generated in all patients. Got it. So, yes. So now you have your arterial in, you're sinking that one. The venous one, are you externally measuring or are you just going to use fluoro to figure out how deep to go? Yes. So this is a a very important uh, step, I think. The venous cannula needs to be verified with either an apicranial over the lucus or an apicodal if you can see the hard silhouette that it's in the right atrium. And usually I want it to be in the middle of the right atrium before I put I pull out the dilator of uh, you know the introducer. And the reason for that is once you have pulled back the, um, you know the dilator that goes inside the cannula over the wire then the cannula is very stiff and if there is a ridge in the right atrium and you push, you will basically rip the right atrium apart. It's very thin structure. So I don't want to advance forward once I have removed the dilator. I'm okay pulling back, but I don't like advancing forward once I'm done. Now, this is super interesting because this has been a point that we've gone back and forth in the course. Now, you know the McKay venous cannula have an actual marking on the dilator um, that tells you when the dilator has been withdrawn within the cannula itself. And we recently have been advocating that when placing it blind, that after the Mm -hmm. holes have disappeared, you actually pull dilator back just enough so that the actual uh, tip of the dilator is within the cannula. And now what's riding forward is you're riding the wire. You're still having the wire centered within the cannula because the dilator is still inside. But what's advancing is instead of that sharp dilator tip, um, the cannula itself is what the advancing, uh, the most forward portion of what you're advancing is. And that was because we're doing this blind for the most part outside the lab. But it sounds like you... Uh, at what point, actually, are you shooting a fluoro? I guess would be the question I'd ask you, Demetrius. Is, right, are, so I think the problem is solved if you have the ability to see the wire going to the SVC. And I usually um, have the wire in the SVC so the dilator stays on board and will never perforate because it rides the, the wire. 
If That's brilliant. The, all right. If you remove the dilator, your cannula is very... So the problem is non-cardiologists do not uh, really have a good sense of the inside creases of the right atrium. And it's not, it's not very unlikely to have a um, kind of a formation like um, a valve at the joint at the, uh, of um, IVC to the right atrium, as well as multiple ridges that are inside the right atrium. So despite the fact that you're following the guide wire, it's, very, it's not uncommon to get caught into one of those uh, ridges. And if you push blindly, that will perforate or create some lacerations there. Absolutely. And uh, that's what the thing that I, I think it's really tricky when you do it blindly. With an ultrasound, for example, you will never be able to see that. Now, um, are you fluoroing to know that your wire's in the SVC? And if not, how, are you just continuously shooting fluoro to get it there? How, how long are you going to troubleshoot if your wire just kind of coils in the atrium? Yeah, I'm not troubleshooting very much because if it's um, coiling in the atrium, I advance the wire, uh, the dilator, all the way up to the IVC, and I can always then uh, rotate uh, the wire clockwise or uh, counterclockwise, and it usually goes in the SVC. Also, if it's on the roof of the right atrium, then I start, I keep it there, and I advance the, the dilator at that point, and then I start removing the dilator while I'm slowly advancing to that uh, junction point, the cannula. It's, these are techniques that we use for um, a lot of intracardiac procedures where we unsheath, as you said before, the cannula, but at least you are visually um, making sure that the wire is protecting with a bend the tip of the cannula. And you never push if you feel that there is some kind of resistance for the cannula to go forward once you have unsheathed it. Um, so it's kind of a feel to it, but if you follow the principles that if you have secured SPC access, it's a no-brainer, you have to worry about it. If you haven't, then you really have to advance into the heart, the whole system, until while you're seeing that the wire is kind of uh, uh, hugging gently the right atrium with a bend, and then you unsheath slowly the dilator inside the cannula, advancing slowly forward the cannula to the point that the bend is um, basically horizontal. Yep. And then at that point, you also have to have a tactile sensation saying, if I feel that I'm caught in something, I don't advance any further. Um, it's, it's your mark that tells you to stop. Absolutely. You know, some folks now, Demetrius, are actually uh, empirically putting the tip of the venous cannula in the SVC because the multi-flow ports of the McKay allowing drainage yeah. all down. Have you given any thought to that? Yeah, so it depends on the height of the patient. Those cannulas are fixed in size. And if I can uh, be in the SVC, I can actually, um, I leave it there at the junction. But in general, most of my patient size, if you have an, uh, many specialists, five, nine and above, the cannula is not going to go to the SBC. It doesn't reach. It reaches at the, um, at the upper two-thirds of the right atrium in general. So I think once you are into the right atrium, it doesn't matter if you're SBC or in the middle of it, you will have uh, multiple. You, you have any issues with uh, venous trainers will be complete. Okay, very good. So now venous and arterial are in. And what yes. is your what is your next move now? 
So the the thing that I found, a lot of people, um, oh, the other thing is the preparation of the cannulas. I always, on, uh, you know, those red and blue cups that yep. uh, cannulas have, I loosen them up before I put them in. And um, at that point, I, you know, a lot of people put the, uh, the clamps um, while they're pulling the system. I realized that that's kind of a, a difficult dance to do with another person. Yep. So what I do is I grab the wire, the dilator, and that little blue cap or red cap all at once. And I pull out everything very, very fast. And I just put my thumb over the of the kind. And then Absolutely. at that point, you have all the, the time in the world to clamp it. Once you clamp both. Hey, folks, Weingart here, just popping in. Uh, what we advocate at the Reanimate course inspired by Lionel in Paris is uh, it's seemingly to me even easier than uh, what Demetrius just described. So what we do is we leave the red cap and blue cap tight on those McKay cannulae. We actually pull the wire out first, and you could stick your finger over uh, the dilator hole, but there's really no reason to. The hole's small enough that they don't exsanguinate through that hole. Um, you just let them bleed for the sec. For your next step, which is you tightly grasp the cannula itself over that blue and red, you know, that's sticking out of your fist, and you pull the dilator out. Uh, making sure you're not yanking the cannula at the same time. And then we jam our thumb into the red or blue piece, uh, similar to what uh, Dr. Yiannopoulos is describing, but I think even easier because then you don't have to worry about grabbing multiple things at once. Your thumb actually fits perfectly, the hole in there. I don't know if they built it for this, but it just takes a thumb just perfect. Your thumb now holds the blood back, and then you could clamp at your leisure uh, with really no trouble at all. And it looks so much slicker, and you don't need to coordinate with someone. And so that's what we teach. And if you've ever, you know, touched these cannulae, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, then this is going to make no sense to you at all. Then I go to the system, which is uh, sterile, and they open it, and they I put, you know, the regular sequence of events. I clamp both there um, into the little, uh, you know, packets they have the circuit, and uh, I hook it up. And then I have uh, some strong scissors because the regular scissors I have in the catheter are not good enough. We bend the cannulas, we make an angle in order to cut them easier because otherwise it's very hard to cut. So basically create a little kink on the tubing so you can cut through the kink. And so now you're hooked up, um, you're, you're getting yep. good flows, uh, you're happy. At what point do you put in a anterograde perfusion catheter? Yes, so... Um, the other thing that I think is also important for our, um, at least for my patient population, is that when I start, um, I start with 50 or 60% oxygen and two and a half liters for a couple of minutes. And then I go slowly, progressively over a minute, minute by minute, increasing the flow and the oxygen, the content of the circulating blood to reach SVO2 of about 70 um, and, uh, the reason I do that, I don't know if it's, you know, scientifically proven, but I've done a lot of, uh, reperfusion injury in animals. And it seems that if you have lactic acidosis and pH of 6.8 and respiratory acidosis and metabolic acidosis, and sometimes hypoxemia as well, flooding suddenly the, the brain and the heart with PO2s of 500 is probably, probably, I don't, I, I don't know if it's 
not good. So that's one of the things that I have been doing and seems to have been working okay. I don't know if it contributes anything to my survival rates, but that's what I do. Well, you know, um, I, I had you and yeah. uh, Keith on the podcast, and you guys had a lot of other things you were doing to avoid reperfusion injury. Are any of those playing a role? Well, yeah, so that is coming through that um, work, body of work, that introduction of high flows with high oxygen delivery um, is probably detrimental in an ischemic uh, bed. So that's why I have, instead of doing stuttering approach, I do just a ramp-up approach of the flow and the oxygen delivery. Um, So that's why we're doing that. And then also, um, I think it's important to say that if you see a lot of the patients with CPR, when you put them on the table, I also put a couple of pillows under the head of the of the patients. And uh, the reason for that is there is a lot of venous congestion. And it's, um, you know, both uh, Keith and myself have uh, shown in some work that if you lift the head up, you definitely drain it better. The ICP drops and cerebral perfusion pressure may or may not go up, but definitely the drainage of the brain significantly and drastically improves, which I think it's a good thing under those circumstances. So that's another little time tidbit that we, so we use in all our patients. you're putting pillows under the head or you're putting pillows under the lucus? Because, you know, the head up CPR, that was 30 to 45 degrees, um, and that's the whole upper body. But this is just a couple pillows under the head is what you're talking about? Yes, I do all uh, just um, two pillows under the head. The head is usually now above them, the level of the chest, like, um, uh, and it's probably more than 30 degrees from where it was, probably 40, 45 degrees. So the neck is at a 40, 45 degrees with the chest, the horizontal line. That's and fascinating. it seems to be working good. That's very um, intriguing. Um, and so you asked about the perfusion, distal perfusion cannula. You know, the distal perfusion cannula in, in my population is uh, an end-of-case um, intervention. And I'll tell you some of those things. I think it's important because... We have uh, gone through circles. So after the active cannulation, obviously we get uh, radials or um, or left uh, femoral artery and veins for thermoguards and angiography and angioplasties. And at the end of the case, we uh, do the distal perfusion catheters. Now, what I found was that you have to find a good catheter. So the lo- you know, when we start doing this regular nine friends, um, I don't know what kind of uh, catheter it was, but it has a, it doesn't have a stopcock at the end, so it has just a tube that has allows for a lot of flow. But it also had an accordion neck, so the hub of the sheath had an accordion to be moving left and right. And we found out that those are very soft; they kink, and they tend to clot, and the whole process is a very big nightmare in a patient with hypothermia and, you know, a lot of lactic acid, those ischemic legs are very dangerous. So for the last 20 cases, we have moved away from that, and we used this kind of two-lumen catheter. It's kind of like um, a dialysis catheter with two ports and a central um, and a central port where the wire the dilator goes through. So kind of three ports overall. One central lumen that uh, the dilator and the, the wire goes through, one very large bore side catheter, and a smaller, sorry, 
uh, channel and one smaller channel on the left. And we'll put those in. And the reason we do that is because we now drip a little heparin through the second side port into the distal perfusion sheath. And we never had a thrombosis of that since then. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah, because I think the low flow state and the fact that you get too many uh, acute angles and deep kind of um, arterial entry points, they tend to cause a lot of thrombosis and acute kind of closure of this distal perfusion catheters. So since we did that, uh, we haven't had a single thrombosed uh, distal perfusion um, catheter. Now this this sounds it sounds big um, based on all these channels. How, how what French is this? If you know offhand, it's just... nine. It's nine. It's, so it's still a nine French. Got it. Yeah. All right. And uh, the distal perfusion. Yeah, the distal perfusion. And I we do it all percutaneously, the same way when we cut downs, obviously. But one of the other things that we start doing most more and more is that we try to get to that SFA with a very low angle of mm. attack, like a, kind of a 30-degree angle, even less if you can. So a long subcutaneous track to get to the artery rather than perpendicular to the artery with a shortest length stick. And the reason for that is those arteries and the muscles, the moment they move the patient, those uh, sheaths tend to kink because of the acute angle of entry to the artery sure. and a lot of muscle around them. So that low angle of attack with the kind of a dual lumen uh, catheter that we use has eliminated our um, thrombosed uh, disaperfusion cannulas, which is, I think, a very, very... Um, it's, it's a source for a lot of complications. Sure. Now, you, from what your description is, there, it sounds like there's three lumens. Uh, and so you're hooking up the actual side port of the arterial cannula to the big lumen, and you're running the heparin through lumen? the the, uh, small the small one. But what, is there a third one you were mentioning as well? The third one is where the dilator was going and the wire goes through. So when so that... It's like the... Yeah. When you take it out, there's nothing. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Wow. Okay, that's intriguing. And now, are you doing that under ultrasound guidance? How how are you actually getting that in? Yes, all of those axes get ultrasound, and the reason is that you obviously cannot pulse, you cannot feel any pulse on most of these patients, and um, blindly, it's very difficult because it's impossible to figure out what it is. Oh, especially yeah. in, in big people, women, and all the stuff, it's impossible to know where the artery is. So aside from verifying wire and cannula position, is fluoro playing any role at all in this for you? Um, at, at that point, oh, so the other thing I want to tell you about the distal perfusion cannula is I start, you know, these are the little things that, how do you know if it's an arterial stick or a venous stick? Obviously, the side of the, co the, the color of the blood, and I send a blood gas if I'm confused. I also found that in order to be successful for the distal cannulation uh, process, I also use an amplatz extra stiff. So once I use a micropuncture and I exchange it for an uh, amplatz extra stiff, I make a little neck to the skin, and I usually um, dilate the track if a person is obese or a very muscly man, for example, with a little kelly. Uh, in order to be able to not kink the or not um, 
destroy the tip of the catheter and cause dissection while you're going in. Those little things, uh, I think, have helped a lot. And our experience has been that um, even fellows now that I train to do that, they are able to do that as long as they understand that take your time. Once you secure the vessel and you have an amplex excess tip in there, you create a little track uh, with a little nick and then a little uh, kelly and then don't push the car. It doesn't go, make another dilation. Um, because if you nick the the sheath itself and creates these ragged edges, you will dissect the artery and it's game over because you're basically now, if you put it in, you might still have flow, but then remember that uh, the blood flow comes from the arterial cannula with high velocities and high pressure. So we will dissect the artery and then you can have this spiral dissection in the artery. Uh, I had a case like that. We had to call vascular surgeons eventually at the beginning of my career <laughs> in the field. And uh, I, I, I really realized it was because when I took the sheath out, I found out that the sheath had this kind of uh, knife sharp edge because it went through a calcified artery and it would kink before it got in. And then it just dissected on the side of the, of the arterial wall. So little things that um, kind of help a lot with a patient like that. Are you using the same Kelly trick on the actual cannulation? I I do. I do. Um, I do that especially the the bigger the people, the more I want to have a, a decent track. Um, so I always, I nick, I put the artery, oh sorry, I put the artery the wire, then I nick over the wire and I get a Kelly and I spread the, the skin a little more. So there is not a lot of um, resistance of the insertion of the cannula to basically destroy the tip of the cannula. Beautiful. Uh, is there anything else I missed on your technique? I think we hit a lot of stuff. Let me just think about it. I don't think that's it. Um, there is a couple of times that I've done two veins when um, in smaller people that I wasn't sure that they could take 25s. I did an IJ um, 219 French cannulas, arterials, that I use for veins. One IJ and one uh, femoral. And create a Y, basically, suction, which was perfectly fine. Started with a small one. So I put them on ECMO initially with a 19 arterial as a venous cannula and 15. And I put another 19 in the neck, and then I connected them with a Y, basically. And that um, was an intermediate step because I couldn't, the veins were small for whatever reason. I don't know why. But I wouldn't take that, uh, that vein. So these are the only other thing that uh, has come to our attention. But all this happens very fast, as you probably know. Absolutely. You know, your, your paper mentioned actually looking at the ultrasonographic size of the artery and making a determination based on that for yeah. the size of the cannula. Are you bothering anymore? You're just going small and everyone is what it sounds like. Yeah, I don't I don't do that anymore um, because I um, the ultrasound tells me if the artery is patent, if it's a decent size, always. Uh, if there's something above, I cannot really assess it anymore. It's time. And if they don't have a capability of accepting a 15 French cannula, you know, game is over either way at that point. Um, so I don't bother. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that 
the techniques of cannulation are important. I think um, the limitation of the bring ECMOs without fluoro is that you kind of go with a feel and to have developed a feel in all this, I think you need to have a lot of experience because you know many times the Y will go into the hepatic veins, you're gonna go to a renal vein. Um, sometimes it goes into the left ventricle. And so you have to be able to make sure that the cannulas, those massive cannulas do not enter those veins because they will rip them apart. Um, and that's why I'm kind of a proponent of X-ray. If you do an AD, at least you should have the X-ray machine over there and just take an X-ray and look at the electronic you know, version of the X-ray uh, and make sure that your wires are in the right spot before you advance. You can also take the, 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 the path that says, well, you know, if I don't successfully do that, they are dead, which is adequate. But I think as as we do more and more, we realize that we'll create some standards of what is expected from our practice in this area. Yep. So instead of being cutting edge, this will now become standard of care, and then these mistakes won't be acceptable anymore. Correct, uh, yeah. I'll ask you one final question, and I'll let you get some sleep, my friend. Is the choice of the McKay dilator set just because that's what's available in your lab and you uh, have it there, or is it because you're happiest with it? Have you compared it to something like the Avalon Access set? I have done the Avalon. Is the Avalon the one that has like the one long cord, and then you? Um, it, it has like that off. super tapered tip that moves almost in a triangle fashion to the actual dilator All size. Right. Um, right, right. No, I haven't used that probably because I just got comfortable with that and I haven't had any problems with the dilators. Um, but I have worked with some of those in the animal laboratory, and uh, because then we get what we get. And um, I think you you pick your poison, you know. You just do whenever it comes to technical, you know, um, expertise. I think the best thing is to do a lot, get experience, understand the limitation of one of those uh, things that you choose. If it's the dilators or the wires, even the cannulas. You know, I don't use the metronic cannulas; they're quite soft. I use the McKay cannulas; they're kind of a little stiffer and has more body to it. Um, but other people like the softness and they think we take the curves better. Um, but in general, I think um, whatever you use, be familiar with it, do a lot of cases with it because you realize the limitations the more cases you do. And, um, you know, technology will advance and we'll have much better tools once this becomes much more standard of care. Right now, we have a monopoly with my K, right? I mean, as far as percutaneous ECMO mobile units, my K is it. And other people trying with some old uh, ECMO machines. Zoll is trying to create a life bridge and bring in the United States. I don't know when they're going to be able to do that and how good it is compared to my K. But I think once the market expands and this becomes more prevalent in the future, because it will, um, there will be probably a lot more innovation to it. So the first steps is like uh, when they start doing bypass, right? <laughs> kind of crude stuff. Now they have advanced a lot. So I think it's the same way here. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been absolutely fascinating, and I know the listeners are going to love it. You're welcome. You're welcome, Scott.